Well, if you return uh, with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah uh, chapter 13, this is our last um, sermon in our series in Nehemiah. And in some ways, it would have been really lovely uh, if we could have ended last week uh, after chapter 12, because uh, last week was really wonderful. Uh, It was wonderful that we could see in Nehemiah uh, the dedication service of the walls of Jerusalem, and we could look at what God had done in Jerusalem and look at how God's people celebrated, and we could think that was really amazing that God did that work in Jerusalem all those years ago. But then we thought of the greater work that God has done in the lives of his people today, that Jesus Christ has died on the cross and is risen from the dead. He has saved us from our sins. He has given us eternal life. And so we celebrated as God's people as we sung his praises and and wondered again at the glorious gospel and the resurrection. And it was truly wonderful. It was amazing that we could sing together and celebrate what God has done uh, in the gospel. And if Nehemiah chapter 12 had ended the book of Nehemiah, that would have been brilliant. I I thought, wow. But then you come to chapter 13, and you realize why I have called this sermon uh, the great anticlimax. As Tim rightly said, I hope that's not the sermon, Uh, but it certainly is the purpose of the end of Nehemiah. Uh, we are supposed to see that chapter 12 was not the end. We are supposed to see that as wonderful as God's work was in Jerusalem at this time, there was more work that needed to be done. And so as we come to chapter 13, if you remember back to last week in chapter 12, you'll think, oh, again, the same problems. He has to do all of this work again. And you see it's a great anticlimax. So I probably haven't excited you about reading this chapter. But as we read this chapter, that's kind of how we should feel a little bit. But when we get to the end of the sermon, I hope that as we look at the greater reformer, our hearts will be really encouraged. Because we'll see that neither is Nehemiah chapter 13 the end. There is a New Testament, isn't there? So let's read chapter 13, uh, beginning... At verse 1. On that day, uh, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. 
Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now 
that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. This is God's word. Can you see the anticlimax? Chapter 12 ends so well, but here we see the same old problems resurfacing again. We've seen these same problems in the book of Nehemiah. We see these same problems all through the Old Testament in God's people, and we see the same problems today over and over again, don't we? The truth of God needs to be fought for afresh in every generation. The battles Christian face Uh, Christians face may take on different guises, but the underlying issues of sin are never new. And for each of us individually, we need to be constantly fighting the same battles over and over, never letting our guards down. And what Nehemiah shows us in this chapter are four battles to fight against in every single generation. They come up over and over and over again in different ways. But Nehemiah also shows us there is a need for a greater reformation than he provides. A reformation where there is no anticlimax. When Nehemiah had come to Jerusalem in 445 BC, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, in chapter 5 and verse 14, we read that from the 20th year, of King Artaxerxes until I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year. So that's chapter 5, verse 14. Instead of you having to turn there, that means he was in Jerusalem for 12 years. But he went back to his service of the king of Persia. So in chapter, uh, in verse 6 of tonight's reading, we read, But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, uh, he uses Babylon and Persia interchangeably, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And what we read in chapter 13, for the most part, is Nehemiah's um, findings when he comes back after being away for some time. We don't know how long he was away for, but he was away for some time. So there was a 12-year ministry. He'd done all this great work. Uh, He has this great party. He comes back, and he finds it's all gone wrong again. I mean, you can imagine how depressing that must be for somebody. The, The commitments made in chapter 10 were not being kept. The spiritual temperature that we saw in chapter 8, where they cried out, bring out the book, is no longer there. And the people are living in ungodly ways. And the ungodliness that prevailed at this time manifested itself in ways that we are very familiar with. We see these same things today. And there are four specific sins 
that Nehemiah finds when he comes back to Jerusalem. There is fellowship with God's enemies. There is the neglecting of God's house. There is the desecrating of the Sabbath. And there is marrying unbelievers. And each of these sins are a continual problem uh, in the church all the time. And they are really a problem in all of our lives much of the time. They're battles we must face. And so as we look at Nehemiah, we're going to see the battles being fought over and over again. So first of all, then, we see the recurring sin of fellowship with God's enemies. Uh, Notice in verse 1, it begins with, on that day. So this is probably a reference to the dedication service. But in verse 4, we read before this. So we can't be sure exactly if that day was the dedication service uh, or it was another day. But what we can be sure about in the first uh, few verses is regardless of when it was, which many commentators are unsure about, we can see for certain what it was. The word of God was opened and read, the book of Moses, and they came to Deuteronomy chapter 23. And they would have read these words. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram, at Neharim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing, because the Lord your God loves you. So the Ammonites and the Moabites were enemies of God's people throughout history. And Nehemiah's enemy, Tobiah, which we'll see in a moment, was an Ammonite. And in the book of Numbers, the Moabites were uh, a people who hired Balaam to curse Israel. But Balaam was unable to curse Israel because every time Balaam tried, God turned his curse into a blessing. But Balaam didn't fail in the end because rather than cursing Israel, years later, he suggested something else to the Moabites. He told them, rather than trying to curse them, entice Israel into sexual immorality and lead them astray to worship your gods. And that's exactly what happened. In Numbers 25, the Moabites led Israel, enticed them, and they began to worship the gods of the Moabites. And so God commanded that they are not allowed in the assembly of God's people so that God's people would not be led astray and that there would be purity amongst them. It's worth adding here, though, just as an aside, that if a foreigner, even an Ammonite or a Moabite, truly converted to the Lord God of Israel, they would be allowed into the assembly as an Israelite. And Ruth, the Moabitess, is an example of that, someone who became a follower of Israel's God and was even in the lineage of Christ. So in verse 3, the people of God obey God's word and they exclude the foreigners from Israel so that they would not be led astray. But in verse 4, another incident is found that's very similar. Eliashib uh, was the high priest. Uh, He's probably the one from chapter 3 who was involved in building the wall. He was a religious leader in the community. He was in charge of the storerooms, but... Notice in verse 4, he was closely associated with Tobiah. And if you read the name Tobiah, alarm bells should be ringing. If it was a pantomime, you'd go boo, 
Because Tobiah was an enemy of God's people all through the book of Nehemiah. So there is an alliance with one of the enemies of God. Uh, someone who tried throughout this book to frustrate the building of the wall. And Eliashib had given Tobiah a large room that had been used previously to store items for running the temple. So Tobiah was in the temple. He was in the very center of Jewish life, able to work his influence and intrigue from the center of the worship of God. And this happened, we read, when Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem. He would never have let it happen. But when he came back, we read uh, that he learned about the evil thing that Eliashib had done. Well, how might this apply to us today? Well, I've titled this sin, Fellowship with God's Enemies. And that's what's going on here. It's not just an acquaintance or a friend or someone you chat with. This is a close association, an intimate working relationship with him. This is not saying we can't be friends with non-Christians. It's not saying we can't even work with non-Christians in all sorts of ways, which the Bible says is, is good. So for example, if, if, uh, if our local MP came to me and said, would you work with me to um, try and overturn uh, abortion laws or this conversion therapy, of course, we would work with that unbelieving member of parliament. That's not what this means. Here, though, we have unbelievers being admitted into the assembly of God or into the temple itself to work in the, in the, in the worship of God. And today, the church is the assembly of God or the temple of God And we must not allow unbelievers to be admitted into the membership of the church and represent the church, represent Christ in the world when they are unbelievers. And the reason for this is because at best, they don't agree with what we believe as a church and so would lack integrity when they look like they do. And at worst, may work like Tobiah did to undermine what we're doing as a church and dishonor the name of God. And so the way that we practice this is when someone wants to become a member of the church, the elders interview that person to check as far as we are able that that person is a Christian. They have been converted. They know the gospel. We also, where possible, even get references from other churches that they've been a part of. And... The main ministry of the church here, where we represent Christ to our community, is limited to church members so that those who are serving are in agreement with the beliefs and vision we have as a church. Furthermore, we're careful as well, for example, of what missions we support. We want to make sure that the money that we're giving as God's people goes towards work which promotes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it can be tempting to have unbelievers join our church. We might think, well, we want to be welcoming or we want to encourage them. Uh, But it's a dangerous thing. We have to keep the members of the church the people of God. The one whose church it is. Well, Nehemiah was a man of action. And in verses 8 and 9, 
He took Tobias' stuff and threw it out the room. I get, when I was picturing what this must have been like, I get the impression of uh, like in the TV shows where the scorned wife packs all her husband's stuff in a black bag and starts throwing it out the window. That's exactly the kind of thing that Nehemiah is doing here. There's no messing around. All of his stuff is chucked out and the place of uh, worship is put back to the proper use. Jesus does the same kind of thing, doesn't he, in John chapter 2 that we read earlier. And if we find, as a church, that members are not believers, or members are not following Christ and dishonoring his name, then we also take the drastic action of removing them from the membership of the church so that others are not led into sin, the person is aware of the seriousness of it, and the people of God are kept pure. Now, it's tempting to think it's all very harsh, not very welcoming, but for the sake of the purity of the church of God, we must not have fellowship in this way with God's enemies. And this is a recurring sin, isn't it? Something that happens all the time. We have to fight against it. So secondly, neglecting God's house. So notice in verse 10, he says, I also learned. So he comes back, he sees uh, the fellowship with God's enemies. He's walking around and he thinks, oh, I've, I've learned something else. And here is another problem he faces. In chapter 10, verse 39, the people had promised, we will not neglect the house of our God. But in this chapter, we see that the neglect had been so bad in terms of providing the financial and other material aspects of the temple that the Levites and musicians had to quit their work in the temple and go back to working in the fields. In other words, they had to give up their ministry and return to other means of employment simply to be able to survive. The point here, by the way, is not that any other form of employment other than being a worker in the church is bad. The point is they were called to work in the temple and they weren't able to because God's people had neglected the giving in God's house. They had committed not to neglect and yet they had. And it can be easy for us to make commitments in our giving and not keep them. And we could have listened to the sermon this morning, which encourages generosity, and we can finish the, get to the end of the sermon and have the Lord's Supper and sit down and say, right, God, I'm going to do this now. And then Monday morning comes and you forget all about it. In fact, there are many ways where we can make commitments not to neglect God's house and not fulfill what we say. We might not prepare well for the teaching that we're committed to doing. We might not show up to serve when we're down to on the rotors. We might neglect to pray for other members. There's all sorts of ways we can neglect God's house. As Christians, we ought to be ones who fulfill all the commitments we make, but especially commitments to serving in the church. The people in Nehemiah's day were not. And so in verse 11, we read that Nehemiah rebukes the officials and he asks them, what, why is the house of God neglected? And maybe that's a challenge for some of us this, morning, this evening. Why have you neglected God's house? And then Nehemiah makes arrangements again, as he does often in this book, to make sure those commitments are fulfilled. And in verse 12, he's obviously done some work because people all over Judah bring in their tithes to the storerooms. The neglect was rectified. But notice in verse 13, there were some 
who seemed not to be negligent, because those he put in charge of the storerooms were considered trustworthy. And so for us, rather than being those who neglect God's house, let us be those who are trustworthy in fulfilling the commitments that we have in the church. In verse 14, Nehemiah prays a prayer which he prays a number of times in this chapter to remember him. And he asks that God would remember him for the faithful work he has done in God's house. Why, why does Nehemiah, why, why does he pray this? Why does he feel the need to pray that God would remember him? Well, I think if you imagine Nehemiah at this time, he's come back, imagine his disappointment. This is depressing. He's done all that work for 12 years, and he comes back, it might not have even been very long, and this is really sad, isn't it? And he, he, he's praying to God, God, please honor Honor the work that I've done. Honor this faithfulness. Please remember it. Don't, don't blot it out. He wants reassurance from God that, is, is this really worth it? Because you can imagine he's turned up and he's thinking, what was the point in that? Twelve years of my life, God. Have you forgotten me? And if that kind of thinking isn't right, you can understand, though, why he feels that way. And he's praying to God that God would honor that faithfulness to remind, to remind him that, that it's worthwhile serving him. And we can know, though, for sure that God answered this prayer because we do remember Nehemiah, don't we? God remembered him. We know about him. We read of his faithfulness. It is worth it. God doesn't forget. So rather than neglect God's house, let's serve in God's house. Let's keep the commitments we make in God's house and know that it's worth it. God does remember. So, two sins. Two more to go. Thirdly, desecrating the Sabbath. Now, Israel were called by God to have the final day of the week as a Sabbath day of rest, where there was to be no work. Now, this pattern was set by God at creation, but was established as a law for God's people in the Ten Commandments. It set the Jewish people apart from everybody else. It acknowledged that God was their creator. It gave God credit for all the blessings they received, and it showed that they trusted him to provide for them. No other nation did it. It set the Israelites apart. And it's the same for us today in the sense that we acknowledge God as creator. We give him credit for the blessings he gives us. We trust him to provide. But in verse 15, we see that the people of God were not keeping the Sabbath. They were working on it in all sorts of different ways. And in verse 16, Nehemiah found out that people from Tyre were bringing in fish and other merchandise on the Sabbath. So it wasn't just the Jewish people not keeping it themselves, but they were trading with others. And if the Sabbath marked the Jewish people out as different, they didn't look very different when they were trading with those nations they were supposed to look different from. This was not keeping the Sabbath. Now today, we don't have to keep all the Sabbath rules and regulations like the Old Testament people did because the Sabbath rest is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He provides the rest we need. We desecrate the Sabbath when 
in a similar kind of a way to the Israelites do here, we trust in ourselves rather than trusting in God. We try to work hard to earn his favor rather than trusting in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. And Christians do this in two ways, kind of two opposite extremes. Some Christians desecrate the Sabbath rest by saying, well, they don't say it out loud, but in their attitude and way of thinking, they think, isn't God lucky to have me on his team? Look at all I do. I'm a brilliant kind of Christian. I do all this work. God must be really happy with me. The church are so, uh, so blessed that I'm a member here. Look at all I do. That kind of attitude desecrates the Sabbath. It, it doesn't rest in God. It, it tells God, you're lucky to have me. I've, look at all this work I've done. But on the other end of the scale, a lot of Christians desecrate the Sabbath by saying, I'm rubbish. God would, God would never love me. All I do is bad. Um, it, I don't even know if, God, if I'm even a Christian. That's not resting. That's someone thinking, I've got to keep doing more to try and, to try and earn God's favor, and, and everything I do is not good. And that's not resting. That's desecrating the Sabbath as well. Because the reality is that God is pleased with us because of the work that Jesus has done. Not however good or bad your work is. Our salvation, our rest, is provided because of the work of Jesus. And one of the ways we respond to that rest we have in Jesus is to set time aside each week to gather as God's people and to celebrate the rest that he has given us. That's why New Testament Christians meet on a Sunday. It's the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose again to provide a new Sabbath. And so we meet together and we celebrate we have rest in Christ. We give him our calendars and we say our time is yours, but we trust in the rest that you have given us. And so why would we as Christians want to do something else instead of meeting with God's people on that day? That's how we keep the Sabbath today. Well, in verse 17, Nehemiah points out their sin again. He basically says, what do you think you're playing at? But notice verse 18. Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us on this, and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. He says that this is a sin that has always been a problem, and it's a sin which has caused God to judge Israel in the first place. This is why you were judged, because you desecrated the Sabbath. You trusted in yourself rather than God. You went your own way rather than God's way. And now you're doing it again, stirring up God's wrath. And for us, when we trust in ourselves rather than in God, when we tell God, my work is good enough, or we tell God, oh, my work's not good enough and there's nothing I can do, and we don't trust in the work that Jesus has done, we are stirring up more and more problems. And if we've never submitted to Jesus at all, we're stirring up God's wrath. And so again, Nehemiah deals with the problem. In verse 19, he shuts the gate. He doesn't open them again on the Sabbath. And in verse 21, 
He threatens arrest. Literally, the, the, the translation of that is, I will lay hands. He said, he said, in, in the NIV, it says, I will arrest you. The literal translation is, I will lay hands on you. In other words, he's saying to them, if you come back and try and bring fish in here, I will hurt you. I know some of you might feel that way about fish, but it's not the fish that's the problem. It's the trading, isn't it? If you come here, I'm going to hurt you. He deals with the problem. He, he's serious about the Sabbath. And at the end of verse 22, Nehemiah prays again. Remember me for this also, my God, and, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Again, he want, Nehemiah wants a legacy that lasts. He wants God to remember him for his work. But notice that he doesn't believe he earns God's favor. He asks God for mercy according to his great love. In other words, Nehemiah rests in God's mercy, doesn't he? He rests in God's mercy. Fourthly, and finally, in Nehemiah 13, we see the besetting sin of marrying unbelievers. Marrying unbelievers. Notice in verse 23 that the men of Judah had married people from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now I want you to note that this is not a a racial thing, but a religious issue. The issue is those nations worshipped other gods. Those nations will lead you to worship their gods. It's not a racial thing, it's a worship thing. And verse 24 sums up the problem of marrying unbelievers in a very striking way. Look at verse 24. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. The worship of God was in the language of Judah and so not being able to speak the language of Judah cut you off from worship. And these children, half of them, did not worship the God of Israel because they did not speak the language of the God of Israel. And here's why it's striking. There are two major consequences we can take from this verse of what happens when you marry someone who is not worshipping Jesus. And the first is this. A believer speaks another language to an unbeliever. A believer speaks another language to an unbeliever. Now, I'm not talking about the English language. This morning, uh, I had a lovely conversation with a, a couple of our Polish brothers and sisters uh, who uh, they say wrongly that they struggle with English, whereas I understand everything they're saying. But they struggle a bit sometimes, uh, sometimes with the communication in English. But they get the gospel, right? They understand the gospel. It doesn't matter what language you're speaking in terms of English or Polish or any other language. It's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is we're part of another kingdom that really does speak another language. So when I say Jesus is Lord to an unbeliever, they have no idea what I'm talking about. Or they disagree with it explicitly. When I'm saying about going to church, they might think, I'm crazy. When I'm trying to obey God's word as a Christian, 
It will go against what they believe is right. And when I want to talk, and I find this um, like with, with, with people in my family who don't believe, when I want to talk about the most precious part of my life, my saviour, an unbeliever has no enthusiasm and usually no idea what I'm talking about. Whereas when I come to church and I meet my brothers and sisters and I talk about Jesus, you get it. And you're excited too. You don't want to live if you can. You don't want to choose to live with an unbeliever where you cannot talk about the most precious part of your life. But secondly, and linked to it, is that your children will be taught a mixed language, won't they? As parents, as a, as a Christian, the most, important, uh, the most important part of life we want to get across to our kids is, is Jesus Christ, isn't it? We want to tell them about Jesus. We want to point them to Jesus. And where we can, as a, as a married couple, as, as a mum and a dad, we want to both, in our marriage, show them Jesus in the way we are together. But that will be of no importance to your spouse if you choose to marry an unbeliever. You may think, well, they wouldn't mind me going to church. Well, that may be true at first, but what about when it clashes with the, the family weekend that they have planned with the children or whatever? You may think they may become a Christian. Well, they may, but it's, it rarely does happen. And it's not an excuse for disobedience either. God can save people without you. Dating an unbeliever is not evangelism, it's sin. Now you may think, oh, that's, that's, that's strong. Well, look at verse 25. Do you think I think it's strong? I rebuked them, Nehemiah says, and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. He pulls out their hair. Now you may think that's comical, and it is in a sense, like when we're reading it. Or you may think that's really extreme. But the point is, it's serious. That's the point. This is serious. Look how serious he takes it. And the seriousness is also shown in verse 26. He talks about King Solomon. King Solomon sinned in this way. There was no king like him. He was, the, he was God's man on the throne. Solomon was the wisest of men, the wisest king. He was a great man of God. But here's the key. Look at the end of verse 25. But even he... Even he was led astray. Even he was led into sin by foreign women. In other words, you, you think you can marry an unbeliever and you'll be okay? You think that? Well, Solomon, he was way wiser than you. He was God's man. And he was led into sin. Do you think you're fair any better? Don't be so silly. And in verse 27, Nehemiah says that these people are following in Solomon's footsteps. Now, I must pause uh, here uh, to offer 
just a word of, of hope to those who are married to unbelievers. Because some have spouses who are, are not believers, not because they've sinned, but because either when the, 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 the two married, none of them were believers and, and you've been saved, or uh, some of you have been married when, when you got married, both claimed to be believers and one has walked away. And others have chosen the path in, and sinned when you did marry, and you're in the situation you are in. What do we say in that situation? Well, for those who have chosen this path, those who have disobeyed God, God forgives all of our sins. He does. He forgives it. It can be behind us. We can walk with Jesus in forgiveness. But when we are in that situation, and I know that's true for many, it is not an easy path to tread. We don't need to sugarcoat it and say, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. But it's a path which the Holy Spirit does help us to navigate. Now, the New Testament speaks of, of the Christian spouse praying for the salvation of their spouse. It, it, the New Testament encourages the Christian to live in such a way that your life and, and godliness points your spouse to Jesus. Your brothers and sisters are praying for you and your spouse. And they can be saved. They can be saved. Have no doubt about that. We pray that that would happen. But whilst we offer hope to those in that situation, I plead with you, don't choose it. Don't choose it. Because we've seen so many Christians make a mess because they made this decision. And in verse 28, we see that this problem even reached the top of the leadership in the temple. One of the high priest's grandsons had married a daughter of Sambalat. You may remember his name. He's another enemy of God's people. And in this case, Nehemiah drove the grandson away, chases him out of, out of the temple. And in verse 29, notice Nehemiah's prayer. He says, remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. They, they defiled the office because they were involved in the sin they were supposed to be teaching others not to commit. And when the leadership of the church is involved in immorality like this, it defiles the office of leadership and they cannot continue to lead God's people. They must step down. And chasing him away also dislodged Sambalat from influence in the temple. Well, as we come just to the last couple of verses of, of Nehemiah, uh, he concludes his, his reforms. And I want you to notice uh, what he does in verses 30 to 31 is he does things he's already done before again. Uh, he, he purifies the priests and Levites. He gives jobs to people to make sure the work keeps going. He, brings, he makes sure wood is provided. He, he's done it all before. And, and, and there's the sense again of, oh, here we go again. They're, they're still not getting it. They're still not, 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 not doing what they should be doing. 
And then he prays at the end that God would remember him with favor. And as we come to the end and we read those, that prayer of Nehemiah, we, I, I think we can conclude God did remember him with favor. When, when we read Nehemiah, don't we read of a godly man? We look at Nehemiah and we think he's a great leader who God did favor. God used Nehemiah in brilliant ways. Uh, you, you, you just look, read this book as a whole and you see a, a great leader of God's people. But he wasn't the great reformer that we're looking for. Because after just reading that chapter again and going through it and seeing those sins again, doesn't it make you long for just that better reformation? Because it didn't end at chapter 12. It didn't end with a great celebration where everyone is all happy. It ended with the same sins all over again. And as great a leader as Nehemiah was, at the end of chapter 13, we realized that his leadership, as great as it was, was very limited and for a limited time. It's a real anticlimax to the book as a whole, isn't it? As great and as visionary a leader as he was, he could not make God's people conform to the standards of God's word. They kept sliding back. And as the book ends, we see that we need a greater leader, a greater reformer who can lead a greater reformation. We need Jesus. Jesus comes, and he's that great leader, that great reformer, who doesn't just tell us, do this and you'll be okay, here's a list of rules, and leaves us to it. He's the great reformer because he changes our hearts, doesn't he? In the New Testament, Jesus goes into the temple, he turns over the tables, and they ask him, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And we read in John's Gospel, he, taught, he says he was talking about his body. Jesus died and he rose again and he sends the Holy Spirit so that our hearts can be changed. And now we as the church are the body of Christ. We are that body. And we are the body that we've seen in Nehemiah that, he, that God is building and he's working on and he's reforming and changing from the inside out and he will finish that work, that great reformation in all of our hearts. And one day, that work in our hearts will be done. It'll be finished. And here's the key. It will not be an anticlimax. Jesus will be working in us. Jesus is building his church. And one day, with all of God's people, who all have had their hearts completely changed, will stand together and serve and praise our King forever. And rather than thinking that will be any kind of anticlimax, the Bible tells us it'll be so amazing, it's beyond what we can even imagine. Nehemiah 12 is a great chapter with a great ending. But it's nothing compared to what we have to look forward to when we will stand with God's people in glory. And so until that day... Until the day when we stand before our Savior as 
reformed people who have been completely changed, let us continue on serving our King with him working through us day by day from the heart so we can serve him and keep going until we get to that great day. God is at work. He's building his church. And it's amazing that we can be part of that, isn't it? Let's keep going for his glory. Well, our final two songs uh, help us to respond. Um, Nehemiah was not the reformer. Jesus is. And we cannot do the work he gives us to do without him doing the work in us. And so the the first song we're going to respond with is a prayer. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew. Asking God to do that inner work in us that we can then do the work he's given us to do. And then our final song uh, is a, a song we've been singing throughout this book of Nehemiah, All Glory Be to Christ, remembering that he's the one that works and he's the one that gets the glory. So let's stand and, and worship our God and respond together as his people.
May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. All glory be to Christ. Amen.